All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31, that's where we'll pick up our, our text. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for letting us, again, gather together to worship you in spirit and truth, born-again believers, madly in love with you, opening your word, receiving everything you have for us. And, um, and we do. We pray that we be changed by your word, but also encouraged, uh, healed, and just all around just blessed to be in your presence. It is a, it's a time of refreshing to be in your presence, and, and uh, you've given that to us. And so we thank you for that ahead of time. We pray the kids have a, just a, a wonderful time tonight in their ministry that they're partaking in. And uh, pray the teachers would bless them abundantly and that the teachers would be blessed as they give out your word and love and caring and understanding and compassion to these little ones that we've entrusted them to, to do, and uh, I just pray that it's just a wonderful time back there. Keep them all safe, and uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight in chapter 31 of Exodus, we kind of finish up with the final thought from God on top of the mountain as Moses has been getting information from the Lord on how, where, when, and what it looks like to be a, a people of gods. Um, these are all slaves that have been slaves for 400 years. And to have this instant freedom and instant uh, autonomy and yet guided by the Lord, it, it takes some training and some, and some care from a, a heavenly father that um, wants him to do well. And, but doesn't want them to run off and, and, and blow it or use their liberty for vice, um, as he warns us in the New Testament. So he's given them some things that'll keep them grounded, which I think is the best way to describe what's happened here in the beginning. The law is meant to ground them, to hold them. The, the rituals that they go through, the ceremony of worshiping God uh, in the Old Testament is meant to keep them grounded. In the New Testament, as a born-again believer, we have the Holy Spirit in us that keeps us grounded. Uh, we can't talk about him enough and his ministry in our lives. The Son, we know, died on the cross for our sins and has taken the penalty for us. We understand that. The Father, we know, as he has sent his Son and shows us his compassion and love for us, and in so sending his Son demonstrates his love for us like no one ever has or ever will. But the Holy Spirit is one that is often neglected, but he is our grounding. He's the one that leads and guides us. He's the one that gives us the fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That fruit doesn't come from our endeavors or from our intestinal fortitude each day, guts. It comes from him and a life living with him and allowing him to move through us and to work in us. The Holy Spirit uh, teaches us. He's our teacher of the word. Uh, the word is his sword. The Holy Spirit also gives us gifts of, the, of him um, that we can use and operate, which is how Jesus was able to heal the blind and raise the dead. Those are all gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, as well as administration and, and so on, and all the other gifts that are associated with him. That, that keeps us grounded. It keeps us in a supernatural walk with the Lord. Um, not just a a philosophy or a club, which it can easy to easily turn into when we don't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
So as we go through this final exhortation here in chapter 31 of God grounding the nation of Israel in a worship of him, uh, concluding with the Sabbath, uh, the rest, a rest, a time of rest, um, I hope that we can bring that into our own walk with the Lord as what the rest truly is for us as born-again believers. It isn't keeping Saturdays holy. It isn't about not mowing the lawn on Sundays. And uh, hopefully we'll learn that tonight. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name uh, Bezalel, Bezalel, I think, uh, the son of Uri, or Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, the Lord says, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach. And they do say the Ahamach. So I got that right. Of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron, the priests, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and the sweet incense, in the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. They shall do. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's our New Testament version of that. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Moses, I've got a whole bunch of stuff for you to do that I want you to do. And then he concludes with, I've commanded you to do it, but they're going to do it. Kind of thing. And what a blessing it is to be filled with the Spirit, just like the Old Testament. These guys didn't come up with their own ideas of what the angels should look like. They didn't come up with their own uh, gifts. Nobody could pat them on the back at the end of the carving day or the cutting day of the jewels or the sewing day of the garments. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, giving them the gifts and the abilities to do those things and the heart to do it. It doesn't do any good to have gifts if you don't have the heart for ministry. It's the most important thing. But he says he's called them, and I think that's the heart portion of it. And then I've gifted them, i filled them with the Spirit, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge so that they could do those things. And they do. And they get it all done. And what a blessing that is to Moses to hear all that and to know that, um, you know, it's a big responsibility, you know. I hope I wrote everything down correctly. I hope I got it right. I hope I'm, no, don't worry about it. I, I, it's, I'm telling you all this, and then I'm bringing alongside people to do all this so that it can be done just like I want. And you need to trust Moses, that I'm, I'm able to do that. You know, God does the same thing in the church today. Calls, puts it on the heart of people to begin to serve, and they have a heart for people. We're going to read that. Moses has such a heart for the people. At one point tonight, he actually says, Lord, please, uh, don't kill them. I, I, I pray that they would be saved and that I would lose my eternity with you. And that's a heart for people, you know. Not a heart for the success of a denomination, not the heart of uh, 
whatever, we can mix that up a little bit and get confused about what it is that God wants us to do. But a heart for people, for souls to be saved, for souls to grow in the Lord, for souls to do well with Jesus, to overcome their sins in their lives, the things that have bound them and have kept them from being whom God designed them to be to begin with, to come alongside people like that takes a heart for people. Moses has that heart. And these people doing all this have a heart for it. They're not complaining and grumbling about sewing today or cutting jewels today or carving today. They just absolutely thoroughly are excited about what God's using them in the way that he's using them. And so we see that. So the last thing he does after telling them all the things they have to do, keep that in mind, we've had nothing but you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do it this way, do, 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 do. He finishes with, and now I don't want you to do anything. And the point of that is to teach them and to show them, he's going to explain here in a minute, it's a sign for you. This last thing I'm telling you to do but not do is a sign. And I want you to do this not doing for a ter- forever. I want this to be a perpetual not doing on this day because it's a sign. A sign. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak also to the children of Israel saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He's not trying to be cryptic here, but I I imagine they don't fully understand what he's saying because remember what's happening and remember what we know and they don't is that everything we've read so far is a picture of Jesus pointing us to Christ. Every sacrifice that's ever offered, every ritual, every piece of furniture, everything that has to do with worshiping the true and living God is pointing to the Messiah, the Savior that will come and be sent by, by God himself, by the Father himself, to die on the cross for their sins so that they can perpetually rest from working for salvation, for working to attain a, a certain level to get into heaven. Because you can't. It's impossible. And I believe every sacrifice and every ritual they have to go through is meant to be exhausting. It's meant to be tiring. It's meant to be futile almost some days. How many more bulls? How many more sheep? And then we read that God tells us, and one of the guys wrote down for us, that it doesn't even take away our sin. It only covers it. What's going to take away our sin? What's going to remove it? We're just covering over it for now. It's temporarily giving us access to God. When does it ever become? And that's the question he wants them to ask. Behold the Lamb of God that you've all been waiting for for thousands of years that takes away the sin of the world. No longer covering, no longer futile, no more exhaustion. There he is. What a beautiful moment that must have been as his cousin Jesus' cousin John points and says, and I don't know that everybody around that river understood. Remember, they're all getting baptized, and here comes Jesus sauntering up to get his turn. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look, everybody look, look over there, you know. Yeah, it's your cousin Jesus. We've seen him for 30 plus years. What are you talking about, John? 
No, that's the lamb. I wonder if they grasped it completely. Well, this Sabbath that God is about to introduce to the nation of Israel is designed to do that, that they would understand this sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You don't sanctify yourself. The sacrifices don't sanctify you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to save you, is the idea. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. It's capitalized. Sabbath is capitalized. Now, it, it may be because it's a holiday, and we do that for Christmas and Easter. You capitalize those things. I understand that. But I believe because the Sabbath is a person. Our Sabbath is Jesus. Their Sabbath is going to be Jesus, and it's capitalized on purpose. You shall keep the Sabbath. You're going to keep Jesus. Therefore, for it is holy to you. He is holy to us. He's perfect. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And isn't that right? Anybody that profanes Jesus, anybody that rejects Christ, will they not be put to death? It's absolutely true. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Anybody that rejects the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and chooses to work instead of the rest that God has provided for them, will they not come short? They will all fall short of the glory of God. No matter how much good works they do, no matter how many things they do to uh, make up for all of their sins, it's never ever going to undo the sentence of death for those sins. And we've talked about that several times here. That if I go out and kill somebody tomorrow and spend the rest of my life being a good Boy Scout and selling whatever I need to sell to stay in, it does not change the fact that I committed murder that I must pay the penalty for that murder. I'm glad you didn't keep murdering. Good job. But there's still this issue back here that hasn't been dealt with because it doesn't matter what you do from here on out, this person died unjustly and you need to be held accountable for it. That's our sin. There's no way to undo it. It's not a scale. No judge in the world ever looks at a criminal and says, yeah, but you've been mostly good. So as long as you're 1% better than evil then you're off the hook for anything you do. That's not true. But most of the world thinks that way. They live their lives that way. In fact, some Christians will say some pretty ridiculous things sometimes. Well, you know, at least I'm not, you know, filling the gap. Hitler seems to be the main one that we all compare ourselves to. When the actual comparison needs to be, well, I'm nothing like Jesus. I'm nothing like Jesus because that's the standard to get into heaven. When you reach the attain, when you've attained that level of perfection of Christ, of Jesus, then you can get to heaven. But until you do, you're destined for hell, as John three tells us that. And that's what the Sabbath is designed to do. I want you to rest. But we're used to working. Mm-hmm. I know that working, 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 and it produces thorns in my life, and it doesn't do any good, and it's a waste of time, and I just, it seems like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to live for the weekend, but it ends up Monday morning comes, and it's still a, a futile effort. That's right. It brings death. Work shall be done for six days. I definitely want you to do that, because that's a sign also. Work, work, work. Six is the number of man. Six days you're going to work. 
Seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. So on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, that's the day of rest. A rest holy to the Lord. It's that big of a deal. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. From the very beginning, God's been pointing to this. I'm going to work. You ever wonder, you know, after six days, did he run out of ideas and said, I think I'm done. I've exhausted my imagination here. I can't create anything new. No, of course not. He's for a purpose. Six days, I'm going to create, then I'm going to stop. And on the seventh day, I'm going to rest. I want to be a part of this. I want to point people, foreshadow my son Jesus coming and providing rest for all those who are heavy laden and work so hard for well, they, something that's futile. They can't reach it. They can't attain that. I want to do that. So he includes himself in that. Now, it, there's a lot here. So I've got several cross-references, and this is where we'll spend most of the time tonight, and then we'll finish up through 32. But I want to read these cross-references to you for this. In Matthew chapter 12, Speaking of the Sabbath, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is speaking. But if you had known what this means, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, throughout Jesus' ministry, they were always trying to catch him doing stuff he shouldn't do on the Sabbath because they didn't understand the Sabbath at all. And they are proof of that. And these are the religious rulers of the day teaching everybody under them the way they think about the Sabbath. And so nobody understood it except the one who wrote it and created the Sabbath because this is Jesus in the Old Testament in Exodus telling them, I want you to have a Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath when he did his ministries. Whether that was healing or whatever, he says, no, you don't understand. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, that threw them for a loop. He continues in verse 11. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. You can do work on the Sabbath. You can do good works as you're saved. It's not like if I try to do and be a blessing to other people in my life after I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean I'm working for salvation. No, I'm just doing the good works that God has laid out before me to walk in. It's not about a day. It's about being a blessing to everyone around you. Jesus says, no. Pulling the donkey out is fulfilling the Sabbath. That's totally normal. Healing somebody on the Sabbath is totally, you guys don't, they didn't understand it at all. They thought it meant sitting on your hands, on the edge of your bed for 24 hours. No, no. Helping the donkey out of the pit's a good thing. 
I wonder how many of these guys thought as they sat on the edge of their bed, sitting on their hands, thought they were doing service to God by saying, I see that test over there. I see that man struggling underneath that cart that fell on him. I'm not going to break the Sabbath. Get up, dude, and go help him. (laughs) No, nice try. And they really thought. They really thought they were doing God's service. There's some Christians today that think they're doing service. They think they're helping out God or being a blessing or obeying God by not mowing. If your wife's been complaining about the lawn being long, long, Sunday's a great day to mow the lawn. If your kids have been begging you to play, but you say, nope, I'm not moving from this couch, it's the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath. Get up and play with your kids, you know? To do good on the Sabbath is it's to be not preoccupied with working, to be a blessing to those around you. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You sitting on the hands on the edge of your bed wasn't a test. It wasn't meant for that. I didn't make you to see if you'd fulfill a law. Hmm, I'm going to create a law. Now I need to create minions that'll keep that law. That's what they thought, and that's what they taught. The world was a miserable place under their leadership, under these guys' leadership. It was a miserable existence to worship this true and living God. It was was horrible. Grandma needs soup. She's sick. She's farther than a Sabbath stay journey. She's just going to have to wait till Sunday, and then we'll get to her because her Sabbath is Saturday. No, dude, go bring Grandma soup. Go visit her, you know? The law was an ugly thing and misunderstood, and he tries to explain it. I didn't make the Sabbath so that you guys could keep it. I I made it to be a blessing to you, to foreshadow what Jesus would do. Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. In the church in Colossae, they were struggling with the Jews, looking at them, looking down at them, saying, completely offended that these Christians who have accepted Jesus, obviously, as their Lord and Savior, were doing these things on the Sabbath. And Paul had to write to them, who was one of these guys, equivalent anyway, of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, although he's saved now, tried to explain it to the Colossians. No, don't let anybody judge you in that. Go do exactly what you're supposed to do, because Christ is the substance. The Sabbath was pointing to him. You have him. Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the person casting the shadow? And if Jesus is leading you to bring soup to grandma, go bring soup to grandma even if she's more than a Sabbath state journey, you know. Get the donkey out of the pit. Help the guy with the cart on top of him. Be a blessing to your wife and to your kids. Well, it's work to me. Well, then I guess you're going to do work on the Sabbath, if that's how you think of it. But be a blessing. Try to explain to them, and I, that's why I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. I believe he wrote it because it was written by someone who knew all about Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews what the whole book is about. 
explaining to them step by step. Don't you see how all of this stuff that God did for us and how we've been worshiping the true and living God from the beginning when he brought us out of Exodus, brought us out of Egypt in Exodus, don't you see how it's all pointing to this moment right here and Christ has fulfilled all of it? And now it's all been simplified and wrapped up in a nice little bow right over here. It's in Jesus. We have him. Jesus casts a big, big shadow. There's a lot of books back here. The volume of the book is written of me, Jesus said. The volume of the book is written of me. All of it is about me. And now you have me. Talk about cliff notes, you know. Beautiful. But to explain that, to understand that, to grasp that. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of of the world. Now, why do I say that? Because the Sabbath is from the foundation of the world. I've called you to that. I've, I've, I've led you to that. Jesus is that lamb that's been slain from the foundation of the world, just like the rest, the Sabbath, is from the foundation of the world. It's all the same. Hebrews chapter 4. That's our last one for the cross. I didn't give it to you because it's the whole chapter. So I don't want you to have to print off that whole thing, but it's Hebrews 4. And that's where we'll see the connection here to that Revelation passage. Hebrews 4 is all about the Sabbath. He gets to that section. It's just written brilliantly as he takes them step by step. See, 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 it's Jesus. Verse 1, therefore... Since a promise remains of entering his rest, which means we've never entered his rest this entire time, we've never entered the rest that he's promised for us. It's all been pointing to a rest, but even though we've rested on Saturdays, it's never, we've never entered his rest. Seeing now that we still have that, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. What? The rest. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. We all heard the same gospel, but some believed and some didn't because theirs wasn't mixed with faith, but you believed in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. The rest was in progress from the foundation of the world. It was always coming at this point in time from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, Again, he designated a certain day, saying to David, Today, after such a long time as it's been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, getting into the promised land, if that was the rest that he was talking about, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Which means the promised land wasn't the rest. The Sabbath day wasn't the rest. None of the things we thought was rest was the rest. The writer's trying to be very careful not to beat them up too much, but saying, see, we didn't enter rest here, even though it was called rest, and haven't rested here. Come on, everybody. You know, he's like, come on, catch up. 
It's Jesus. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner in the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have, here's the connection to Jesus, such a high priest who has passed through the heavens, the curtain, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to his throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. The rest that everything's been talking about. The rest he's talking about here. This seventh day rest that they're supposed to have every six days rest. Every six days rest is to remind them to be prepared for the Messiah. Jesus is going to bring a rest. Verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Ten commandments written by God. Here you go, Moses, take them down now. Not going to go well now. Chapter 32s. Keep this in mind. The people at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses to come down with these Ten Commandments never hear any of this. They never get any of it. They will eventually, but they're breaking all the laws without even knowing what the laws are, which is what the law is intended to do. The law was written down so that we knew we were breakers, so that we knew we were criminals. So we understood that in writing, God says, I sure hope you never do this. Oh, there you go. I see you doing it. You're a breaker of the law. It was meant to bring guilt. It was meant to bring a desperation upon the hearts of anybody that would read these Ten Commandments and say, I've broken literally every single one of those. And the question is supposed to come as they read number 10, what do I do if I've broken all these? Because there isn't anybody that reads those that hasn't broken those. We still have people today looking at them like attainable goals. Of course we should live believing and not doing those terrible things and doing some of the things we're called to do for God. But the guilt is already there. I've already broken them. They're supposed to bring us to Christ. They are tutors. Every single one of those laws and all of them together are meant to be a tutor to bring us to the need for Jesus, the Savior, the rest, the Sabbath. So he gives them the two tablets to take down. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he'd been up there for 40 days, the people gathered together to Aaron. He was the guy left in charge. That's uh, Moses' brother. And said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, they act like they don't even know the guy. This Moses guy? (laughs) You know. That's like someone saying, that some, some guy named Trump. I don't know. What do you mean some guy named Trump, you know? This Moses guy, and I'm not trying to make the connection between Moses and Trump. Don't misunderstand me if you're watching online. He just said 
Trump was Moses. No, I didn't. I'm saying he's as well known as. The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Man, when the Bible says let patience have its perfect work, what a great example of when patience doesn't get to, they're that close to getting the Ten Commandments. They're that close to seeing Moses coming down, glowing from being in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God, so much so that he is now radiating God's glory from his face. They're that close, and they say, I don't think he's coming back. Let's make some inferior golden idol like we have had in the past, and let's worship that instead. What a poor, horrible substitute for what they could have had. And so I'd encourage you tonight, if you're in that place of restlessness, in that place of I don't want to wait, of that hurry up, fine, I'm going to do it myself, I would caution you to wait for God's beautiful, perfect answer. You know, let him bring it, is my encouragement to you. And Aaron said to them, because he's a great guy, break off the gold earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, And brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is it. Finally, we can cast our eyes upon this. Now, they're, they're claiming all those things were miraculous. All those things really did happen. They're not denying the fact that they had 10 plagues, amazing Red Sea experience, a bunch of food, manna, quail, whatever, you know. They're just now ascribing all those beautiful things that happened to them to this golden thing they just made. That all the miraculous that happened in their lives was really fashioned with their own hands. We do the same thing today. We can do the same thing today. I was looking up stories. Um, I was going to try to, I, I decided not to, obviously, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the cliff notes of what I was studying. I was trying to come up with um, lottery winnings and winners, not winnings, winners, that just absolutely destroyed their lives. Because I'm thinking about this. By the time this is all over with, I guarantee you, most of the people are like, I sure wish I didn't have those gold earrings. I wish I'd have given them up because... I kept those back, and I'm wearing them like an ornament, and the only thing I did with them is I fashioned a god of gold out of them, and it's absolutely going to ruin my life. The stories of lottery winners ending up 10, 15, 20 years later living, well, living in poverty after winning millions and millions of dollars or millions of euros. I read a lot of European folks. I guess they've got the lottery over there too. Cocaine addictions, debauchery, just a, one lady actually won and secretively didn't tell her husband about it until she, the divorce was final. She left him because of it. And then when it was discovered that she had won these, the judge said, give it all to him. So she lost all the money and her husband, and now she's destitute, and she's waitressing now. Nothing wrong with waitressing, don't get me wrong, but this is probably not where she thought she was. It's just... What you thought was going to be your savior, what you thought was an ornament on you, ends up being the golden calf that separates you from God. You know? 
they break off these golden earrings. Remember, they had already donated, they had already given, they had already totally blown Moses away, and they had to say, stop bringing stuff. We've got enough for the tabernacle. No more. We're good. You guys give too much, he said. I don't know. Sure wish they didn't have these gold earrings right now. Of course, you know what? They would have made it out of wood anyway, wouldn't they? They would have made something. It didn't have to be the gold. It could have been anything. That rock over there will do. Carve that into something. Oh, great round rock. Don't even carve it. Just put it up here, you know. I remember that in the 70s. Pet rocks. Anybody that old? They sold us rocks. Put them in cardboard boxes with little grates on the front of them and said, here's your pet rock. Name it, care for it, and we bought them. Every time your parents look at you, if you're a young person here in the room, and they say, oh, that's a waste of money. (laughs) Oh, no. We had our wastes of money, too. X-ray glasses. Not x-ray glasses. You couldn't see anything. I bought them. Hercules wristbands in the back. No. I was not stronger. I just looked dumb. <laughs> Bo plays, Bo plays Fortnite. Some of you know what that is. Uh, and you can buy virtual skins, you know. Virtual skins. You're bu- My son has a closet full of virtual skins that I pay $10, $5, $6 for. And I'm looking at his closet and I said, you know, that's a car. Sitting there, no, not that much. But and I think, oh man, that's just so dumb. And I'm thinking, no, I did my dumb stuff, you know. That being said, it really doesn't matter whether they had gold earrings or not or whatever. They would have made something. Oh, pet rock, thank you for leading us out of Egypt. They were sincere in their worship, but it was a lie. Sincerity has nothing to do with truth. Sincerity is just someone's belief in whatever. It does not equal truth. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. Oh, good. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Tetragrammaton. So he's truly calling this calf the, the true and living God. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drank, and rose up to play. And that word rose up to play isn't soccer, a game of catch. It's the most horrific thing that you could probably think of as far as physical activity goes. It's debauchery. They rose up to play. They rose up to experience and to indulge and to everything. And the Lord said to Moses, after he ends in the Ten Commandments, get down. Go get down, exclamation point. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Here's your Ten Commandments, Moses, teach them to the, this is great. Go get down. What happened? We were having this really great conversation. Because I'm watching everything that's happening here, Moses. I see it all. Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Well, that turned real quick. But these were your people. Now they're your people today. They're being weird. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Uh, awfully close here. Now, Moses does something that not a lot of people would do. Been a really awesome moment on top of the mountain with God. Has received these beautiful Ten Commandments, and God just says, no, 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 man. He's had it. I've had enough of these people. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? These are your people, God. These are the people you were going to show the rest of the world how great you were, how gracious you were, how merciful you were. These are your people. He goes on to say that. Why should the Egyptians, whom you beat up with ten plagues, beat up all their gods when you left, speak and say, he, God, brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to... Consume them from the face of the earth. You don't want them talking bad about you, Lord. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. This isn't hard to understand, but people make it hard. Did God change his mind? I don't think so. Moses has the opportunity to intercede. Remember, this is all pointing to Jesus. I see your sin down there. The law has been written. It's a testimony against you. I will now go and destroy you which is the penalty of sin, is death. He's doing what he does. He's a just and perfect God. What has to happen, though, for this to stop is there needs to be an intercessor, someone to step in between, someone to intercede on behalf of the people. And Moses takes up that responsibility and says, don't do it. Don't do it. Your servant to whom you swore by your own self, I will multiply... Don't. God relented. Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is the one who intercedes on behalf of us. Day in and day out. Night and day he stands before the Lord, interceding before us. That's the only thing in between God's wrath in this world and any believer in Jesus is Jesus. The wrath is coming Jesus, the intercessor, keeps it from coming to you or to me or to anybody that trusts in his name, that believes on him, allows him to be your intercessor or their intercessor. That's the difference. I am just as worthy of wrath as Hitler. You are just as worthy of wrath as Hitler because of the sins that you've committed against God. But because you've placed an intercessor, Jesus Christ, in between you and God, you no longer have that penalty. He sees Christ's righteousness and not yours. It's his. So he didn't. 
And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise, remember Joshua was halfway up or so, the mountain. He didn't want to be with the people, but he couldn't be with Moses. So he, did his, the, he got as close as he could. I like that. What a great heart. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. We need to get down there. That's Joshua, isn't it? We need to get down there and beat up who's ever beaten up our people. Mm, but he said, it is not a noise of a shout of victory, nor the noise of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of, the, out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. Talk about washing your mouth out with soap, you know. Boy. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Did they hang you up by your toes, Aaron? Did they torture you? What did they do to you? Um, they asked. Really? That's all it took for you to compromise and to crumble was for them to ask. Hmm. There comes another time when Moses shows his anger. We're not there yet. But when he's told to Speak to the rock. Remember, he smote the rock, and the water came out for the people because they were thirsty. They began to complain again, and he says, now I want you to speak to the rock and let water come out. Instead, he gets angry with the people because they're complaining and hits the rock again, and that's when he gets in trouble with God. See, God is angry here. Moses is accurately representing God at this point. You can take that God of gold, and you're going to drink it, and I want you to know it's worthless. On the other hand, when it comes to Speaking to the rock, God was not upset with them, and Moses misrepresented God to those people. And God said, you cannot misrepresent me. I didn't get mad at you with the tablets because I was mad. But I wasn't mad at the rock, and so we got to keep that in mind. As we represent God to certain people, we need to represent him properly. Anyway, what did they do to you, Aaron? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. <laughs> Too late. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man whom, uh, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and a calf came out. We laugh, and I laugh at that. I mean, it is funny. It's like a toddler. Uh, I don't know what happened. Somebody did that, you know. It told us specifically that he fashioned it with his hands, and he said, I it's a half-truth. That's how I see it. I don't, I don't care how ridiculous it sounds. I mean, it is. It's funny. It is. It's just, I think it's designed to be funny. We're supposed to look at this with, this is ridiculous. But half-truths, sometimes, well, I don't know how many of us have ever done but We do it a lot. How'd you get in trouble? Well, I was, I was doing this. I mean, I, I wasn't doing anything wrong. But you got arrested. Well, yeah, that's because I did something wrong after I didn't do anything wrong. You know, 
We have truths. And tell the truth. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put on his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to the entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. We're going to stop this sin. So the son of Levi did according to the words of, the Moses, of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now, why did that happen? Remember, the, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And it's meant to come along and bring conviction and bring a death to sin in our lives. We're supposed to hate it. This is symbolic. I mean, it actually happened. And they're, they're blessed that only 3,000 people got killed that day. It could have been a whole lot more and probably should have been. But people caught in the middle of the sin, still doing it. Stop this. The word of God is meant to stop sin in our lives. We're meant to read it and let it pierce us and cut and divide and discern our hearts between the joint and the spirit, between the soul. It's supposed to get right in there and change us. Let it. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man is, is opposed, uh, has opposed his brother or his son and his brother. In other words, you stood up for righteousness. Now, it came to pass in the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. There it is, making atonement. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, These people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Hmm. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Let me pay their penalty. Let Let it rest upon me. I don't have, I mean, honestly, I love you people, but... I have a really hard time standing up here and saying they're in the middle of their sin right now to look upon. I mean, you talk about every man, someone would die for a friend for sure, but to die for your enemy, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother animal there, you know? Moses, in his red hot temper, has such a heart for the people, says, if you're going to blot anybody out from your book, let it be me. Let it be me. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my books. I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go. Lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. That's capitalized because it's Jesus. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made. Now, it's all been forgiven. They're still moving on. They're going to the promised land, but there is still consequences for their choice and their decision here, isn't there? There still is. I would love for God to forgive me and, and then don't let me have the consequences of all the things I've done against you and against people around me, but that's not the case. Yes, you're forgiven, but you still left a wake of destruction behind you. The only thing you can hope for now is to stop causing that wake of destruction. Stop now. It'll, it'll dissipate. Have anybody seen a boat going down the, 
the river or down a lake, you see that wake. Eventually, the, the waves reach the shore and there's no more wake. If that boat stops, the wake stops and it still continues because it's already been cast, it's already been made, but eventually it hits the shore and it stops. Stop the destruction. Let that wake continue and do what it needs to do. It makes ripples, it makes waves, but it'll eventually quit and there'll be still waters again. We don't have time for anything else, but that blotting out of the book is interesting. And he's talking about that in Revelation 13. That's that scripture. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Anyway, and that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that, Jesus, you are our rest. Help us not to walk away tonight without understanding that in our hearts, that we have found rest in our labors, trying, working, looking for a way, sweating our way to salvation, sweating our way into your good graces. It's just been given to us. There's a place of rest in Jesus. We can find our rest in him and truly rest from working for salvation. It's, it's been given to us. Everything we do from here on out is from thanksgiving for that rest. That we would still help people along the way. We're in a perpetual rest, a perpetual Sabbath. Let us not sit on our hands, God. Help us to always see our neighbor, always see those in need, always be that blessing, healing people, bringing them to you. It's not work for salvation. That's not going to help our salvation at all. It's as good as it's ever going to get in Jesus. It's perfect. And now that we've found that rest, Lord, help us to be a blessing to bring other people into that same rest that we have, Lord. Because if we don't understand that we're at rest, how can we teach other people to be at rest? So it helps to truly understand that as a fellowship, as individuals, as families, so that we can truly represent you correctly to this world. That, Jesus, you are our rest and everybody else's who will put themselves in your rest. Bless folks as they go tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, be glad to pray with you up here.